Jeffrey Lickman for Beyond the Legal Limit. Welcome back to a new episode. And I was listening to some other podcasts, and I don't like the dilly-dallying at the beginning. I don't like the chit-chat. You know, you're wasting time listening to a podcast. You want to get right into it. You don't want to hear the music. You don't want to hear the commercials. Anyway, let's get right to it. This past week, the main thing to me that's been happening was the ending of the uh, so-called Freedom Convoy in Canada. And that was uh, where it basically ended, where the leftist Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, who, when he's not uh, breaking up Freedom Convoys, is wearing blackface. Anyway, he invoked the Emergencies Act, and that's the first time in Canada's history that it was ever invoked. And the Emergencies Act gives the government temporary measures, including compelling tow truck operators to remove the protesters' large trucks. They could also freeze truckers' personal and corporate bank accounts and suspend the insurance on their trucks. Now, Canadian authorities, due to the Emergencies Act, also broaden the scope of their anti-money laundering and terrorist financing rules, mainly for one reason, that's part of the Emergencies Act, but it, it was so they could shut down crowdfunding for the truckers. They froze all monies donated to the so-called Freedom Convoy, and they can also restrict the movement of the protesters. I mean, it's really heavy-handed shit that they did to end this. The auto authorities even threatened the truck convoy demonstrators, the ones who brought their pets along for a ride, that if they were arrested, they would take the pets and you'd basically have eight days in which to come and get your pet back. If you didn't get your pet back at the end of eight days, well, there goes Fido. They're going to put Fido down. So that's some pretty sick shit that they were threatening the protesters with. And these people all came with good intentions. I mean, this was not a violent protest over, you know, over days. They just were sick and tired of the restrictive mandates when it came to the COVID vaccination and the masking and all that, all these things that were making their lives miserable. And they felt that they had some freedom over their own bodies and they didn't want to have to get vaccinated just to earn a living with their truck. And the truth is they didn't really do that much in my mind to deserve the heavy handed treatment from their own government. I mean, they didn't burn down any cities uh, the way the protesters did after George Floyd uh, was murdered all over America. They simply prevented goods from getting to America over a bridge from Ottawa in Canada. And we were aghast here, I think, really watching it from America because we're thinking, why aren't we doing something like that? We've got so many restrictive mandates in place because of the vaccine. Why don't we do something about it? Now, I know a lot of people are saying, well, geez, you know, if only we had Trump back in office, you know, he would take care of this stuff. He'd be much tougher. And look, and I've said this before on this podcast, uh, Trump didn't do shit uh, with regard to the mandates. In fact, he started the mandates. He started the masking. He started the, the lockdowns. He started all this stuff. And when there was real protesting in America, and I'm talking about violent protesting, not the kind of stuff that Trudeau did, Trump did next to nothing as well. He visited this historic church that was partially burned down during the violent protest after the George Floyd murder. And um, he visited the church in D.C., right by the White House, a day after he was forced to take shelter in a White House bunker. I mean, think about that, that these anarchists, these Antifa savages, that they chased the president of the United States 
down into a bunker in the White House. So the next day, he came out and he went to the church, the St. John's Church, which was set on fire by the protesters. And he stood there with a Bible and he said, This is the greatest country in the world and we're going to keep it safe. And except that he really didn't. He didn't really do much of anything to keep it safe. He let the cities burn. He let buildings and homes and businesses be destroyed. He threatened to send in the military. And this is a lot of the type of stuff that Trump did as president. He threatened a lot and didn't really follow through very much. Threatened to send in the military to crush the skulls of these protesters, but he didn't. He tweeted a lot. That's really what he did. He watched the riots from the White House. He looked outside and he said, Nobody came close to breaching the fence. That was his big, tough comment. He said, but if they had, they would have been greeted with the most vicious dogs and most ominous weapons I have ever seen. Typical Trump, hyperbole, stupidity, empty threats, nothing. Trudeau, for all of his pathetic weakness, and he is just a pathetic person, just look at him. He did all the things to nonviolent protesters that Trump failed to do to the violent protesters in America. Trump smirked and and laughed about it, but as I said, he didn't do a damn thing to stop Antifa. He threatened to designate them as a terrorist group, but he didn't. He threatened to go into American universities and stop the brainwashing of the kids there with all the leftist dogma, the communist garbage, but he didn't. He threatened to tackle social media and their censorship the leftist social media, the big tech, but he didn't. Where were the mass arrests when the rioting occurred in the summer of 2020? The freezing of bank accounts. Trudeau, as I said, is pathetic. He's pathetic, but he was tougher than Trump. It's sickening to say, because I hate Trudeau, but it's true. It's true. So I don't want to hear any more about Trump 2024. Because if somehow he wins, you're going to get four more years of nothing accomplished. And that again, that's my beef with him. A lot of tough talk and dumbass tweets. Yes, he's better than Biden. I mean, frankly, if Biden purposely wanted to screw up America, he couldn't do any worse than he has in the past year by accident. But we can do better than Trump, who will be like 79 if he wins in 2024. Do we really want an even older Trump? Than we had last time, and he was so confused and dopey and didn't really accomplish that much. We want a more demented Trump, if it's even possible. We can do better, and we really have to do better, is the more important point. Now, other uh, issues in the news that came about was this this one I just love this Virginia Jeffrey story. She was the woman who, when she was 17 years old, she was allegedly trafficked by Jeff Epstein and Jizz Lane Maxwell. And she slept with Prince Andrew a few times against her will, she claimed. She had that famous picture when she was 17 with Prince Andrew with his arm around her waist. She uh, sued him for a zillion dollars and she settled with him this past week. And the number was anywhere from 12 to $16 million um, because she had sex with him when she was 17 at Jeffrey Epstein's Manhattan home and some other places. She claims that she was a child, is what she said, but at least according to New York law, she was not. The age of consent in New York is 17. But as I said, she claimed that she was forced to have sex with Prince Andrew. She was afraid, she claimed she'd be harmed if she didn't have sex with him. By the way, did I have I mentioned on the podcast that I spent hours with Jeff Epstein in the MCC, potentially to hire me for his defense and one day I'll do an episode on you know the stuff that I can talk about. 
But that was uh, was an interesting few hours over a period of days. Anyway, back to the settlement that this Virginia Jufre uh, had. <clears throat> Last month, it was claimed that she wanted $5 million to settle out of court, but she would no longer accept a potential payout because she wanted the case to go to trial. Because, you know, it's not about money for Virginia. She wanted Andrew to have to f- be forced to testify publicly. She's the founder of this nonprofit called Speak Out, Act, Reclaim. That's an acronym for SOAR because she's soaring to the heavens with her, her wings. And she's got a crown, of course, naturally. And it's to help sex trafficking victims. And she wanted to show instead that there are legal consequences for those that prey on young girls. And that's why she wanted Andrew to have to be forced to testify. And that was her right because the case was not dismissed. She had the opportunity to have him testify. However, we found out that the reason she did not want a payout was because it did not advance this message of the fact that there's got to be a penalty for people that prey on young girls. Well, guess what? You wave 12 to $16 million in front of her nose and her tune changed completely. And Andrew was not required to admit that he even had sex with Jeffrey as part of the settlement. He said that he accepted that she suffered as an established victim, quotes, of sex abuse, but he did not admit any wrongdoing. He didn't even admit any wrongdoing. He didn't even admit that he had sex with her. She didn't require any of that. After just a month before, we learned that she had all these lofty principles. Anyway, it was never about the money, she said. Jeffrey wanted to show the legal consequences for preying on young girls. It was never about the money until it was about the money. And that's just the way life is. We heard for years, justice, 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 money. And that's where it ended. Now, another uh, interesting story in the news. I'm not sure if you follow the Olympics. I haven't seen literally a second of the Olympics. Uh, Five female ski jumpers were disqualified in Beijing, the Olympics, after officials said that their suits, you know what ski jumping is, that's when they go down that long slide with no poles and they keep their skis together and they get launched in the air and whoever lands the furthest uh, wins. You know, it's just a genius sport. Anyway, uh, the officials said that the suits that five women were wearing were, quote, too big and offered an aerodynamic advantage. And of course, there was a lot of crying from the competitors and outrage among the affected teams, and that was Germany, Norway, Austria, and Japan. And there's a lot of crying because, you know, when things don't go right, you know, sometimes people cry, even Olympic athletes. And the reason that the, the, the suits were not allowed is because they offered more wind resistance. Think about it. If you want to stay in the air longer, if you have a suit that's got a little more material on it, you can sort of spread out and, you know, catch that wind underneath and it keeps you up in the air longer. It makes sense. So suits, these ski suits are inspected by officials at each event. Now, these were suits that had passed muster before, but apparently the Chinese want, not not surprisingly, they want all their athletes to win. So anybody that they can fake disqualify, they do. But the point is that even a tiny advantage counts when you're an athlete. So if you have a ski suit that has a tiny bit extra fabric on it, they disqualify you. You can't ski jump because you might get this tiny advantage. If you're a hockey player and you have a a stick that has a tiny bit extra curve on the blade, guess what? It's a penalty. You can't use that stick. You might get suspended also. Same thing with uh, uh, goalie's equipment. If you have an inch too much padding, they don't want that. It's not fair. They want fairness in sports. A millimeter too much on the curve of your stick and you're toast. That's how sports works. 
Unless, of course, you need to promote a leftist agenda, and then common sense and consistency and fairness obviously go out the window. And speaking of, Leah Thomas, the transgender swimmer at University of Pennsylvania's women's swim team, uh, this past week she crushed the other swimmers in a 500-yard freestyle finals by a full seven seconds. Seven seconds winning. Like, the difference between her and the second-place finisher was more than, like, numbers 2 through 72 finishing after. That's like an hour uh, when you're a highly trained athlete, those seven seconds. And who also crushed the competition at the women's, I say this again, women's Ivy League swimming championships? Well, I'm glad you asked. It was one Isaac Hennig who swims for Yale and is in the process of, and I've talked about this on a previous podcast, she's, he, they swim, whatever, Isaac swims for Yale and is in the process of transitioning from female to male, cut his female boobs off, and raced as a man with male pronouns, and after the race was over, stripped down to his swimsuit briefs with no top because he doesn't have female boobs anymore, and ended up winning Friday's 50-meter freestyle final in a pool record time. So basically, the Ivy League Women's Swimming Championship is dominated by a female swimmer with a penis and no boobs, and a female swimmer with no penis but no boobs, male name and male pronouns. So <laughs> in, in one case, the swimmer who has all the physical attributes of a man swims as a woman and insists upon being referred to as a woman, and in the other case, a swimmer who has no penis or boobs but has a male name and insists on being referred to as a man in a women's race. But if a woman has one sixteenth of an inch of extra fabric on her snowsuit, she gets sent home from Beijing for having an unfair advantage. Having a dick and having testosterone pumped through your veins through, you know, for 17 or 18 years of your life, that's okay. Another story in the news that I thought was interesting, I'm, I'm hoping that you heard about, was one Quintez Brown, a 21-year-old University of Louisville College senior, who was charged with attempting, attempting to kill the Jewish Democrat who was running for the mayor of Louisville. He simply walked into the mayor's office on Monday morning and started firing his Glock 9mm handgun. I've got some Glocks. Uh, good choice, Quintez. It, it almost never jams. That was a good choice. He ended up firing the Glock at the politician. He then ran, uh, fled the scene, and was arrested a short time after. Somehow he missed his target. He missed a Jew, which must have been disappointing, and no one was harmed. Now, this case received attention for a couple of reasons. One is that Brown, Quintez Brown, is a Black Lives Matter activist who had been pictured with Barack Obama in 2019, just a few years ago. He was one of 22 people chosen to meet Obama as part of Obama's My Brother's Keeper Alliance, which is aimed at closing achievement gaps facing young blacks. Because, you know, there's achievement gaps. Now, Brown, I don't want you to get confused, Brown and Black, Quintez Brown was named as a future star by the Obama Foundation just a few years ago. He's been described as a genius by people in his community. He was a University of Louisville Woodford R. Porter scholar. I mean, imagine being a scholar at the University of Louisville. That means you can walk and chew gum at the same time. Uh, this is a designation for black students who achieve academic excellence and show a commitment to strengthening and serving their communities. Now, Chanel Helm is the uh, co-organizer of Black Lives Matter's Louisville chapter, and she met Brown in 2017. 
She said that he's a change maker in the community and added that his work and advocacy had affected progress. He was, quote, a phenomenal leader, you know, always thinking about others, how everybody can be at the table, except for the ones, I guess, he just shot seven nine-millimeter rounds into. He is always very attentive and chipper and just informative. Now, this Quintez Brown also was an intern at a Louisville newspaper a few years back. He wrote an article which stated that, quote, Kentucky's concealed carry law shows your life doesn't matter to gun-loving Republicans. Now, that's pretty funny, and we have to admit. And this is what also he wrote. Your life has no meaning to the irresponsible politicians who time and time again choose the National Rife Association over your life. And he complained about Kentucky's concealed weapons without a permit law. And he said they put a price tag on your life and decided that the blood money they received from the NRA is more valuable. So (laughs) you also, I have to just read this. Every time lawmakers vote against gun safety and thus the lives of our most vulnerable, they show that their hearts can be as cold as the steel of the guns they praise. Now, first of all, I got a lot of guns. They're not really cold, but I guess they're they're not hot, except when you shoot them, then they get really hot. Anyway, he marched for stricter gun laws in D.C. In an interview, he talked about Kentucky Republican Senator Mitch McConnell, who was then the Senate Majority Leader, and he said that Congress, uh, he's going to get taken out of Congress. And if you're not going to give us that in terms of acting on guns, then we're going to get everyone to vote and we're going to vote you out of office and get rid of assault rifles. Now, this is madness because just a few years later, he managed to get his mitts on a gun, a loaded gun, and start shooting at a Jew in an office. Now, I know you're wondering as you're sitting there listening to this podcast, why does he keep bringing up the Jew part? Because there's hardly been, you know, any mention of one important fact that really hasn't made much of the newspapers. And that's the fact that Quintez Brown is a Jew hater. (laughs) Not surprisingly, um, last week before he tried to shoot the Jew, Brown met with a representative from a group called Lions of Judah, a black nationalist militia group. He urged his Instagram followers, Brown, following this meeting to join the Lions of Judah Armed Forces, which is a gun-toting group whose leadership has voiced ideas very similar to the black Hebrew Israelite movement. And if you're following racist black Jew-hating organizations at home, You'll know they're the ones with the very Jew-hating ideology, which holds that black Americans, not Jewish people, are the true descendants of the biblical heroes. Hebrews, and adherents of this movement were charged with murdering four Jews at a kosher supermarket in Jersey City in 2019. Now, this Quintez Brown was not a pacifist, despite Obama's organization saying that he was. His Twitter feed is just filled with very radical black nationalist ideology and commentary, and he praised the cop killer amongst other revolutionaries. So, yet again, another black leader is a Jew hater. And at what point do black leaders become educated? And I've talked about this before that it was the Jews that marched with them during the civil rights movement, it was the Jews who died with them in civil rights movement. And at what point did the Jews figure out that blacks seem to hate their guts if you go by the number of hate crimes committed against them? I know that's a, an uncomfortable thing to say, and I'm not saying that they're all like that, but it sure seems that a lot of them are. And it's getting harder to deny it, it, this when so many black leaders seem to have a Jew problem. 
And even the mainstream ones like Jesse Jackson, let's not forget, he was the one who made that interview. This has got to be 35 years ago, maybe even more. I think it was 1984 when he was running for president or whatever. He uh, was speaking to a reporter and he called Jews Jaimes and he called New York City Town. You know, because to him it was nothing. He couldn't believe that was even considered anti-Semitic to make fun of Jews. And Al Sharpton, an acquaintance of mine, I would consider him almost a friend, uh, has a long history of anti-Semitism, although he has apologized for it in recent years. And the shit that he said back in the 80s and 90s was like David Duke type stuff against blacks and Jews. He incited violence. He was basically calling for a lynching of Jews. And it's almost become accepted at this point for black leaders in America to be Jew haters. And nobody really seems to care. It's not held against them. As I said, it wasn't held against uh, Sharpton or Jesse Jackson. Obama, as we know, sat in a church for decades with a pastor who was just filled with Jew hate, constantly bashing Jews. Obama's close friend was the the right hand of uh, Palestinian PLO terrorist Yasser Arafat. That's Rashid Khalidi. None of that disqualified either Sharpton or Obama, Jesse Jackson, for their roles as national leaders of blacks and even of Americans. Not that blacks aren't Americans, but I mean all of Americans. Anyway, this Quintez Brown, the the Jew-hating, anti-gun black nationalist, was arrested after attempting to murder the Jew politician. And he was released on very low bail, $100,000. But I've gotten uh, murderer cases, murderers out, alleged murderers out on $100,000 for bail. But never such a low number for someone who like literally walked into an office and started firing. I had one case where I got a $100,000 bail, a murder case, where the defendant stabbed an individual in the leg and ended up severing an artery. The guy bled to death. It was a murder case. But I think one of the ways I got him out was I said to the judge, you know, he didn't really intend to kill. It was, you know, if you take everything as true, it was more like a reckless event that he should have known could lead to the man's death. And I got him out. And I've gotten huge bail numbers on other murder cases, federal and in the state, but never again is something as low as $100,000. Now, naturally, his lawyer said that Brown had mental problems, and I find that Jew-hating terrorists always have mental issues when they try to kill Jews or actually succeed in killing Jews. It's always the excuse. They always have mental problems. You can uh, beat an elderly Jewish woman and throw her off a balcony to her death. If you smoke a lot of pot, you can get off. And in, in one case, in France in 2017, you don't even get charged. They can just, the judge can say you smoked a lot of pot and therefore you didn't mean to kill the Jew. Um, this, the killer in that case in France was a Muslim who was the victim's neighbor. It was a 64-year-old woman who was a former kindergarten director. And during the attack, which lasted about 20 to 30 minutes of beating her brains out before he threw her over the balcony to her death, he was heard uh, chanting verses from the Quran and shouting Allah Akbar, which of course means God is greatest in, in the terrorist language. He wasn't even prosecuted. Wasn't even prosecuted because hating Jews doesn't stop you from being a national leader. So why shouldn't it help you get away with murder? And what would happen if a black supremacist walked into a black politician's office and started shooting? You think he could run for office someday? Be a national leader? You think he'd get out on bail? You know, I'm going to guess probably uh, nose across the board there. Now, truth is, Quintez Brown, uh, the Jew hater, the black nationalist, the anti-gun advocate until he needs a gun to kill a Jew, really does seem to have mental problems in fairness. He ended up disappearing last summer for two weeks in Louisville. 
and was found sitting on a bench, not in Louisville, but in Brooklyn, New York, two weeks later. Now, I get the explanation of why, I'm a defense lawyer, remember that first, I get the explanation as to why BLM bailed them out. And I don't fault them for this. If the law allows you to bail somebody out, hey, it's not the person's fault who bails them out. They claim that they didn't believe that Brown would be safe in prison and he wouldn't be getting the mental health treatment that he needed. And that makes sense. It's true. He wouldn't have. Just because we're not happy with the guy's crime doesn't mean that he's not entitled to bail if the law allows for it. Although, of course, when this guy gets convicted of the crime, because he will, assuming that the prosecutor and the judge don't give him a non-incarceratory sentence because, you know, he's a leftist who tried to kill a Jew and that sometimes you get a pass for that, he's going to be spending years in prison. So, He's not going to get the mental help then anyway. But as for the bail decision, claiming that he has mental problems, his lawyer did, it didn't really cut it for me because I think that if he has mental problems, he may not be as likely to follow the court's instructions and stay in his home and not kill another Jew who he hates. He was uh, part of his jail conditions that he has to be on house arrest with one of those electronic monitoring bracelets around his ankle. But it's very easy to cut those off. I've had clients that have cut them off and, in fact, they've been gone for 24 years now. But this, in essence, is just another example of where Jew hate in the black community is swept under the rug. Another example where leftist hypocrites say one thing and do another. And, again, you didn't read much in the news about Quintez, Quintel, whatever, Mr. Brown hating Jews because it's just kind of expected, I suppose. I don't know. Also, keep in mind that the purpose of bail, one of the reasons that you get bail, that a judge will give it to you, it depends on who's posting it. If it's like your brother, your mother, your family members, a close friend who's posting their house, their life savings, the judge feels that you've got some kind of moral suasion hanging over your head and you're not going to jump bail because you know that your family, your friends are going to lose their entire you know, life. They're going to lose their houses, all their money. So that's usually the reason why judges can grant bail. It depends on who's posting it. But in a situation where the poster of the bail is an organization like Black Lives Matter, who has like $60 million, God knows how much of it's stolen, how much of it's left. This Quintel, I'm getting his name wrong. Quintel, Quintez, I'm just going to call him Q. He's not going to be concerned about Black Lives Matter losing that money. It's $100,000. That's nothing. That's like one of the cars for the, the BLM leaders. You know, they got to have a fancy car. So what incentive does this Quintez Brown have not to violate his bail conditions? Doesn't really have much. So if I were that Jew, Greenberg, who got shot at, I, you know, I'd be sleeping with one eye open. Now, although I did enjoy, the one part that I did enjoy is that it was a leftist on leftist crime. You don't like guns. The guy uses a gun. You may want to have a gun by your side, Mr. Greenberg. Now, more hypocrisy and idiocy from the left. Now, I know this is an old story. We've talked about the Super Bowl before, but that was last Sunday, late night. I didn't have a chance to talk about it. I wanted to get on Monday morning and amend the the podcast that I gave, but no one wore a mask at the Super Bowl. Absolutely no one. And there were mask mandates there. You had to show proof of vaccination and wear a mask. No one wore a mask. No one. The TV cameras caught J-Lo, Ben Affleck, Matt Damon, LeBron James, all these crazy far leftists. None of them were wearing a mask. These are leftist heroes. These are the heroes of the mask. That imbecile uh, mayor of L.A., Eric Garcia, who lied and said that he held his breath when he took a, a maskless picture with 
Magic Johnson at the NFC Championship game. Remember that? And he lied and said that he held his breath, even though you know, he was standing there like a complete imbecile with his mouth open, smiling because he's a mouth breather. He didn't have to lie this time because no one wore a mask. He was captured on camera without wearing a mask, talking to people. Nobody even cares. The media doesn't care anymore. There was no attempt to hide it anymore by liberals. They just insist that the rest of us wear masks because we're beneath them. They're above us. <laughs> I mean, the next day after the Super Bowl, California schools maintained the mask mandates for all children. There's almost no danger to these kids from COVID, especially compared to a, a fat clown like Garcetti who laughs in the face of his constituents and their children. And he's not punished for it. In a perfect world, you know, there would be people, there'd be a very high lamppost, uh, in his future, I'll leave it at that. Eric Adams, New York City's mayor with the big ass teeth, big smile, beautiful smile, wonderful smile. He was asked about the NBA rule, talk about hypocrisy, which prevents Kyrie Irving of the Brooklyn Nets. It prevents him from playing home games in New York or New Jersey because he's not vaccinated. But players from other teams who come to New York or New Jersey to play and aren't vaccinated, well, they're allowed to play. The rule makes no sense. The NBA commissioner, Adam Silver, brought it up and said, you know, we really hope that Eric Adams changes the rule in New York City because it makes no sense. And Eric Adams can do that because he's, you know, he's a powerful man. But Eric Adams says he's not going to do it. Why? Because he said it would send mixed messages. And Eric Adams is a whole bunch of things, but he does not like mixed messages. Of course, he rarely wears a mask in public, even when he's around kids who are also required to wear masks all day in school, even though there's like almost no cases left in New York. I mean, they've disappeared like 96, 97% over the past month. Kids still have to wear them all day, but Eric Adams, and it may be that he can't fit, fit the mask over his giant teeth. I'm unaware of the reason why he doesn't wear them, but he's not concerned about the commission, the transmission of COVID. He's just concerned about kids being exposed to it. Now, Eric Adams, the uh, former uh, transit cop, crossing guard, he wonders, he came out and said, why are New York City offices only 28%, 28.6% filled when compared to their pre-pandemic levels? To what he just said the other day. Now, this moron is absolutely doing nothing to get people back into offices because the mandates in New York City are just too much. You can't brainwash people and, and lock them down for two years and then expect them to want to come back to the scene of the crime. He hasn't figured it out yet. But what I do like about Eric Adams, the one thing that's pretty cool about him is that we as New Yorkers have a mayor who says that he goes to the club. I mean, how cool is that? We got a mayor who goes to the club. I don't know what the club is. I've never really understood it, but apparently Eric Adams goes to the club. And I know that maybe I'm just not, I'm just not cool enough to know what the club is, but Eric Adams goes, I mean, cause he needs to blow off steam. That's what I read also. He blows off steam at the club. Now it's not the club. I want to make sure that my listeners hear this carefully. It's the club. Now, other great Eric Adams ideas that he had on Friday, he announced that in an effort to clean up the very dangerous subway system in New York city, which is just filled with knife wielding, crazy homeless people. How is he going to combat this? Well, I'll tell you, he's going to send school nurses to convince the homeless crazies to accept help like mental help. Now, Imagine your school nurse when you grew up 
when you were a kid, going into that grimy fucking subway and trying to talk to some crazy homeless dude who hasn't bathed in like a month, doesn't have a shirt on, has like six knives in his pocket, and he just, oh, by the way, he just peed on himself. I mean, why, why don't we send the lunch lady next? You know, the, the school nurse isn't enough. Let's send the, the lunch lady. At least the lunch lady could occasionally break up a fight in the cafeteria. We all remember that. The school nurse was practically in a coma all day in her office. Who got sick during school? So sick that the nurse had to, you know, spring into action to save a life. You know, because kids, young kids in school, they're often having strokes or heart attacks during the day or maybe having a gangrenous leg or something like that. So anyway, I actually did go to the school nurse occasionally when I was a kid. I'm going to confess some personal stuff here. I'd go to the nurse when I, I needed a private bathroom, you know, with a lock on the door when I needed my uh, <coughs> uh, privacy. I'd complain of a headache or a stomach ache and just go to the school nurse. The teacher didn't care. Go to the nurse. And I'd go to the nurse and I'd say, oh, my stomach hurts, my, my ass hurts, whatever I had to say. And she'd take my temperature and would tell me to lie down. Now, of course, I had no interest in lying down. I wanted to get into that toilet with, the, with a lock on the door. So I would just run for the can and you know, I'd just sit there for a while. And then I would do some pretty serious thinking in there. But it was nice because all the other bathrooms in, in my high school, they didn't have any doors on the stall. And all the kids smoked in there. It was kind of a the place where a kid like me didn't go. So I would have to go to the nurse and pretend that I was sick. Now, I'm certain that the experience that the nurse had in handling my sneaky bathroom uh, dashes would have made her really ready for the subways to handle the homeless, the crazy ones amongst them, and convince them to get mental help. She couldn't convince me to go back to biology class, but she's going to take the dangerous homeless and convince them to go to a loony bin. Now, some more hypocrisy from the left because it just doesn't end. Do you remember Loretta Lynch? She was the one who met on the tarmac with Bill Clinton, who supposedly put the fix in so that Hillary wouldn't have any issues from the Department of Justice. Now, Loretta Lynch was the attorney general of the United States under Obama. And this is a woman, black woman, all about justice. A former U.S. Uh, attorney in the Eastern District of New York, that's Brooklyn as well, she is justice for blacks. She grew up in an under injustice, and she really strived uh, to be a credit to her race, to her people. And she's been a great example. I mean, the truth is she's a brilliant woman. She was certainly, I thought she was a, a pretty damn fair U.S. attorney, but she's all about justice. Well, guess what? Remember Brian Flores, and we've talked about him, the former Dolphins coach who's suing the NFL for their racism. Guess who the NFL just hired to defend itself from this uh, racial justice-based lawsuit? Yep, you guessed it, Loretta Lynch. This is how it works, I've been trying to tell you. Just pay money and everyone sells everybody out. No matter how much they're for justice, money is more important. Nothing more, nothing less, period, end of story. Now, I, I, I hate to get into the Ukraine issue, the Ukraine story, what's going on now. Now, I know that not everybody really understands. So I'm going to give you the 30-second version. The Ukraine broke away from the Soviet Union when it fell in the early 90s. The Ukraine is a very large country to the west of Russia, and it's really a bridge to Europe between Russia, which was part of the USSR, then the Ukraine is to the left, and then you've got Europe. And after the Soviet Union fell, NATO, 
expanded east in Europe because NATO is had a lot of member states from Europe because they're our allies. And they started expanding east towards Russia, gobbling up these countries because they want to have a bulwark against Russia. That's, this way, all the countries are together. And these are uh, members like, and not that Poland was part of Russia, but Poland, the Czech Republic, Hungary, Bulgaria, Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, Romania, Slovakia, Slovenia, I think Albania, Croatia, I'm sure I'm missing some. So NATO, and again, it stands for the North Atlantic Treaty Organization. It's a group of about 30 countries. They're all allies, and they agree to protect each other if there's a war. And mainly, it's going to be against Russia, who's a very dominating figure in that region. The NATO alliance keeps moving closer to Russia's borders until finally the only buffer between Russia and NATO is the Ukraine. So Russia's Putin wants assurances when, after the Ukraine broke away, wanted assurances that Ukraine would not join NATO because he didn't want literally an alliance of, you know, 30 plus countries on his doorstep that if he did anything wrong, they could come in and destroy uh, Russia. Now, everybody knows this also, that he wants the Ukraine back into the old Soviet Union fold. That's what he wants. I mean, everybody, you know, Russia wants those countries that ran off. They, They want them back. So that's why when the Ukraine declared independence from Russia, this is decades ago now, they agreed to turn over their nuclear arsenal to Russia in exchange for a guarantee that they would not be invaded by Russia. Russia did not want the Ukraine having nukes for obvious reasons, because they could use them on Russia, and Russia doesn't want to use nukes, excuse me, the Ukraine doesn't want to use nukes against people that were formerly their neighbors. They don't want to use nukes, so they gave them back. Of course, um, Russia broke that promise and invaded the Ukraine in 2014. So now, as we know, uh, Putin has amassed thousands and thousands of troops on its border with the Ukraine, and we we keep hearing from the White House that Russia is about to invade the Ukraine. Every day, Biden, I mean, it's crazy. He's like a one-trick pony. And his team, Biden and his team, were screaming about the evidence they have that an invasion is imminent and it will cost 50,000 Ukrainian lives, is what he says. There's only one problem. Russia denies it. But that's okay. The Ukraine denies it as well. And they say that the Biden team has not showed them any of this so-called evidence. Biden kept saying for weeks that his intelligence said that a Russian attack on the Ukraine would be on February 16. That's already a few days ago. He claimed that that's what American intelligence revealed. Now, if you're Putin, and let's say you're planning on invade on February 16th, you're just going to say, well, just do it a different day to show that Joe Biden is a, a cackling imbecile. There was no invasion on February 16th. You know, World War III did not break out. Now, of course, Biden, instead of saying that he was wrong and that he's full of shit, Uh, He claimed in remarks uh, sometime over the last couple of days that Russia is again going to invade this week. Forget the 16th. He he really meant the 23rd. It's like when Pee Wee Herman was riding a stupid bike and he flew over the handlebars and he ended up rolling on the ground and then landing on his feet. And he said, I meant to do that. So he's saying now, Biden, that he was not wrong about the 16th. He meant this week. We have reason to believe Russian forces are planning to, intending to attack Ukraine in the coming week. In the coming days is what he said. It's just bonkers. We believe they will target Ukraine's capital, a city of 2.8 million innocent people. When asked by a reporter following his remarks, do you have any indication about whether President Putin has made a decision on whether to invade? 
course, Biden has an answer for that. He says, at this moment, I'm convinced that he's made the decision. This guy's also convinced that he hasn't shit his pants. And he has shit his pants. Of course he shit his pants. He's very, very old. And he doesn't, well, whatever. He doesn't have control over that. The man is just nuts. He's making this up. Now, the Ukrainian president is practically begging Biden to shut his mouth and stop trying to induce a war. He's begging Biden to share his intelligence. The Ukraine is an ally of ours. And he won't share intelligence, which could lead to the deaths of, you know, potentially 50,000 citizens of an ally state. It just doesn't make any sense. Now, Trump is an idiot. He treats like a, he tweets like a mental patient. But the bottom line is that his advisors are better than Biden's. At the end of the day, that's almost as important as who the president is. Now, I've got a, a few minutes left. I suppose I, I should tell a story about what happened at the end of the Gotti trial. I don't know that I've told this story on a podcast before, but the trial was like a one in a million when it started. And I hate to change gears so quickly without a break, but what the hell? Let's do something different. The trial was like a one in a million. And somehow during the 23 days of trial, I convinced the jury that they should not convict John. But we expected in our hearts, I suppose, a conviction. Everybody did. The whole city did. In, in my heart of hearts, I never thought we'd be convicted. But I, as I've said, oftentimes, I am a bit delusional. So uh, the jury is out, 23-day trial. They're out for seven days, which is a, a very long time at this point. And every day that the jury is out, we're feeling more hopeful and more hopeful. And the government is just, just they're just freaking out. They're terrified. We had nothing to lose. If we lost, everybody expected us to lose. If we won, you know, we're heroes. So finally, the jury comes back. And I think I had mentioned earlier that I had, a, a, I developed a close relationship with the judge during the trial. Not that I spoke to her outside the presence of the prosecutors, but she seemed to be, um, she seemed to enjoy my cross-examination. I was a, kind of a bludgeoning type, very sarcastic. And for whatever reason, she seemed to enjoy it. So she got a kick out of me. So she comes back and says, we have a partial verdict. Now there's three defendants on this case. Everybody's charged with very serious things. And I'm freaking out because I don't want there to be any verdict. I want there to be a hung jury because a verdict most likely is going to re lead to a conviction. So we all stand up and the, we're waiting for the jury to come back in the room. And I am literally, I'm like Joe Biden. I'm shitting my pants. I mean, I'm, it was, it was pretty bad. I'm sweating because this is a big moment in my life. I mean, I'm, I'm a kid in this business still. And this is really the most important moment of my entire career up to then. And maybe the most important ever in my career, 16 years later. So we're standing up. The judge looks at the, the, the verdict sheet because it's handed to her first. The jury then files in and it takes some time because there's a lot of jurors. And I'm standing up. The, the courtroom is buzzing. It's packed with reporters. It's packed with artists, the courtroom sketch artists, family members, massive amount of the community is there to watch. And I'm the lead lawyer of this case. Everybody else on the case, uh, other than my partner, Mark Furnish, uh, has uh, massive experience. I have some, but not as much of these guys that were sitting next to me that were in their late 60s or however old they were. And as I'm standing up, it's like the entire courtroom falls away, and I lock eyes with the judge, Judge Shira Shinlin. And um, we're far away from each other because the defense table is behind the government's table, and I think they had maybe two tables, I don't remember, but it was, it was a good 25 yards away 
we're across the room from each other. And I lock eyes with her, and she looks at me, and she had just read the verdict sheet. And I'm freaking out because if Gotti gets convicted of one charge, he's going away for decades. One charge, and he's charged with many things, the Curtis Sliwa kidnapping and uh, attempted murder, stock fraud, RICO, racketeering, all sorts of bad stuff, extortion. Any one of these things would put him away for decades. And I'm standing up across the room and I just, I don't hear anything. All the noise kind of fell around me and I, I latch eyes on with Judge Shinlin. And she looks at me and she mouths the following. I don't know if I've ever told this story to anybody, frankly. She mouths the following to me. Nobody sees it. And it was weird. Everybody's so, I guess, distracted by all the different things going on in the courtroom. I mean, one of the family members of one of the defendants fainted. It was crazy. And she mouths to me, you're okay. You're okay. That's all I saw. And they start reading the verdict. And it was like I was dancing in between the raindrops. Count one, one of the defendants guilty. One of the other defendants hung. Gotti hung. Count two, one of the def- another defendant guilty. Gotti hung. The other two defendants were convicted of a variety of charges. One of them got 20 years. The other one, I think, got eight. He was a very minor participant in the case. Gotti, who was the lead defendant by a mile, not guilty, not guilty, hung, 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 every one of them. The court, the judge brings us up the sidebar, and I'm like starting to appreciate what really had happened. And she says to us, what do you want? Do you want me to declare a mistrial, which means the case was over, we'd have to try it again, or do you want me to send them back to try to continue to work on the rest of the counts that they're hung on? And the government is frantic. They want a mistrial. Why? Because they figured since there were a couple of acquittals against Gotti, there was a decent chance that the jury was leaning towards acquittal on the rest of them. Of course, they were wrong, as they were throughout the entire trial. There were a couple of 11-to-1s for conviction, including the RICO count. Now, a lot of the other counts were 8-to-4 for acquittal, 7-to-5 for conviction, but a couple of 20-year counts were 11-to-1 against Gotti. But we didn't know that. We weren't allowed to find out the, uh, the vote of the jury. So she looks at me and she says, what do you want to do? And the government is, they're literally, they're ready to pass out. I mean, because this was a lot of pressure on them. And I'm sitting there thinking, well, what do I do? Do I take a chance here and, and, and roll the dice? It was like one of those old game shows. Uh, they just handed you $1,000 in cash and you can either keep the money and walk away or you can give the money back and see what's behind curtain number two and see if there's a Chevy Chevette there that's costs about $4,000 instead of the thousand you just got. And I'm thinking to myself, do I take the money off the table or do I say, fuck it, let's continue to roll the dice? Because I really felt impervious at that point. I mean, it was a really bizarre feeling to have. And it's really hard to explain when you're a trial lawyer and you're in the process of getting a nearly impossible win, because that was a win. You feel you're just indestructible. You feel that you can't be touched. You feel that you're almost a god in a way. I mean, it's perverse and I'm embarrassed. It's coming out of my mouth now, but that's how I felt. So I looked at the judge. She looked at me. We locked eyes again. 
and I'm thinking, all of a sudden it hits me. You know, I was not a, a very high profile lawyer until the Gotti case. I was a kid. I mean, I, I, I got the case in my 30s. And in this field, in criminal defense work, you know, you're not really a star until you're in your 50s, probably, or maybe late 40s. So I'm really young for this. And it hits me all of a sudden, if I take this money off the table, this is going to forever change my life. And then I start thinking, I'm actually having this discussion with myself. I remember it. You know, I can't be thinking about myself. I got to think about John. I'm looking over at the table. He's sitting there. He has no idea what, what's going on. And I turn to him and I walk over to him and I said, I got to talk to my client and discussed it with him. And, and he was just so completely trusting of me at that point. I mean, who can blame him after what I had accomplished? It was just an incredibly lucky trial for me. It was, it was skill, but believe me, luck had a lot to do with it. I came back to the judge and I said, we'll take the mistrial. And I knew at that point that I had locked in a win that would probably define my life. And it has to some extent. I mean, I've done the Chapo case since then. I've had some big trials since then. But you can't get a bigger case than Gotti in New York. You just can't. And uh, to get that result was incredible. To finish this off now, I have a few more minutes left. I'm going to tell another quick story. This was now September of 1995 when the Gotti verdict came down. Gotti won. 19, excuse me, 2005. This is the September of 2005. I graduated law school in 1990. Did not have a job when I graduated Duke Law School. Why? Because I wanted to work for a small criminal firm. I didn't want to go to a big firm. I've talked about this before. And I was at a wedding for a friend of mine, a roommate of mine from college. This is now my, I'm just graduating law school. So it's like three years later when I lived with this guy. And his father was a high-profile criminal defense lawyer in New York. And uh, when I saw him at the wedding, he said to me, Jeff, there's going to be a lot of my friends here. You know, hit him up for a job. You know, maybe one of them will hire you. You know, you're a smart kid. So I go at the wedding, and I am like literally begging all of these high-profile defense lawyers just for an interview. And they're laughing in my face. Some of them are being polite. I got a, an interview or two, but for the most part, they were laughing in my face. And one guy was Bob Morvillo, who's dead now. And, uh, he just like was making fun of me about it. Like you're at a wedding and you know, we're trying to get drunk here and you're looking for a job. And I'm thinking, dude, this is my fucking life. Like, I'm not here to get drunk. I'm here to get a job so I can feed myself. I was terrified. So he just basically laughed in my face and was laughing at one of the lawyers who did in fact give me an interview. Anyway, I'm the kind of person that holds a grudge. I hold grudges and I don't hold them for one or two years. I get revenge on every person that's wronged me. Believe me, I get it. It may not come right away, may not come in two years, may not come in five years, may not come in 15 years, but I get it. So all I could think about when I was getting ready for the trial, for the Gotti trial, was that I wanted to win for one reason, so that I could tell the press after that Bob Morvillo just sucked that he sucked and that he laughed in my face 15 years before and here was my chance at revenge. And he had just finished right before the Gotti trial was the Martha Stewart case and uh, he lost. And by all accounts, he didn't do a very good job. He had associates doing cross-examination. I've never had an associate do a cross-examination in any trial of my life. I do all the work myself. Bob Morvillo did not and it showed and Martha Stewart went to jail. Martha Stewart went to jail, but John Gotti didn't go to jail in consecutive high-profile trials in the same courthouse in Manhattan, Lower Manhattan. 
So as I'm packing up my bag to leave, I've just gotten the biggest verdict of my life, or at least a non-verdict, partial verdict. And I'm packing up my bag, and Mark Furnish, my uh, partner on a lot of cases, he uh, looks at me, and he could just see the very twisted look in my eyes, and he knows me like, like no one does. And as we're packing up to leave, and there's press all over in the hallway, I have to like fight through to get out, and they're outside, hundreds of reporters, and they want to talk to one person. They want to talk to me. He could see the look in my face, and he says, you got to be kidding me. I'm like, what? He says, you're thinking about Morvillo, aren't you? This is your revenge, isn't it? I hadn't even told him about my revenge, but that's how well he knows me. And I said, as a matter of fact, you're goddamn right that's what I'm thinking. I've waited a long fucking time for this. So we walk outside, and all I can think about is Bob Morvillo, and I start talking to the Daily News about Bob Morvillo and about how work hard, and if you work hard enough, you can get anywhere in life. If you're just willing to work hard enough in America, and lawyers need to work harder, not like you know what happened in the Martha Stewart case where the poor woman went to jail even though she was innocent. I'm going to give this whole thing without mentioning Morvillo's name, but alluding to him very clearly. Anyway, I'm all excited. All I cared about that day, the win was nice, but getting the revenge was better. It was better. Anyway, the next day I opened up the newspaper. I couldn't wait. I couldn't sleep at night to see the article about my interview about Bob Morvillo. And of course, the reporter didn't mention any of it. Cut it all out. And I guess because he thought that it was ridiculous and offensive, the shit that I was saying, which of course it was. He probably saved me from myself. And anyway, that's the story about my revenge. That's what I was thinking. That's exactly how the verdict went down. That's how it went down after Gotti. That's what I was thinking about. And look, to be a really good defense lawyer, you have to be a maniacal, really obsessive type of personality. You really have to be. Because if you're not, you're going to lose every single trial. Jeffrey Lickman for Beyond the Legal Limit. Thanks again for, enjoying me, uh, for joining me on this episode. See you next week.